very glad if you could have that uh, passage uh, open in front of you. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, page 678, and, uh, excuse me, 675 and 676 in the Church Bibles. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. like to begin with a riddle, a little riddle. It begins with the tale of a garden and ends with the city of gold. What is it? <laughs> Some of you are showing me it because it's, it's, it's in your hands, in your very hands. It's the Bible. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's uh, begin at the very end, a very good place to start. Let's begin with the uh, uh, city of gold. Last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, which speak to us of a new heaven and a new earth, a holy city, Jerusalem, and we we come to a sense during these two chapters, it's actually a garden city. It's full of beautiful buildings, but it also has uh, a river running right through it and also avenues of trees or an avenue of trees. So a garden city. And in that place, there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Just think about it. What a place that will be that we as God's children have to look forward to. We read too in these chapters that the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Now, we're in the book of Revelation. It's picture language. It's sometimes very difficult to, um, you kind of think you've got hold of it, and it runs almost through your hands like sand. And yet there are powerful hints and suggestions, I think, here of something great and wonderful and terribly active going on in this place. Another thing is, we read, no longer in this place will there be any curse. And then perhaps most critically of all, for my purposes this evening, we read in chapter 22, and I think verse 3, God's servants will serve him. God's servants will serve him. So amongst many hints that I think we get from these last two chapters of the Bible about the new heaven and the new earth, God's new creation, God's new home for his people. His home becomes his people's home too. They will see his face. They will be with their God forever and ever. It's a place teeming with activity and productivity and creativity. If you've ever ever imagined heaven to be merely sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, then think again. It is full of life, full of activity. Read the chapters for yourself and make your own mind. And think how even how tired you may be at the moment and how much you would like a rest when you go to be with Jesus and with God in heaven. How quickly you'd become bored if all you had to do was nothing forever and ever. It's not like that. But the work the activity, the productivity, and the creativity will be without death or mourning or crying or pain. 
fast reverse now back to almost the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapters 2 and 3. We read that the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. He took the man that he had made and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Already teaching there about productivity, work, industry. There's a warning. You you can eat of any of the trees, the fruit of the trees in this garden, apart from one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, we know that our first ancestors did obey, disobey that simple command. And, uh, uh, and then we read, with regard to the woman, God's sentence is, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. I understand that to mean that God is, the Lord is picking out a key aspect of a woman's life, childbearing, and, and using that as an example of the whole life being subject to difficulty and toil and pain. Similarly with the man, he says to the man, um, cursed is the ground, and through painful toil, you will eat of the ground. So taking a typical activity for a man, especially an ancient man, of working the ground, saying that's going to be hard, painful, and difficult. And of course, both eventually died physically as well. We live ourselves, you and I, between these two worlds. The world of Revelation chapter 21 and 22 and the world of of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. It's like two, a, a, a huge tectonic plate overlapping another one. And we're on the overlapping bit. We look forward with joy to God's new heaven and new earth. The home, scripture says elsewhere, of righteousness. But also we are living in a world where, it, where we experience death and pain and suffering and accident and all kinds of things like that. The world of Genesis 2 and 3. Right between these two bookends, Genesis and Revelation, stands the book of Ecclesiastes, almost exactly in the middle. And of all the books of the Bible, it's Ecclesiastes that seems to look more intently than any other at this world of Genesis 2 and 3. The old world, the passing world, the world that finally will be done away with when there is no more curse and no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears. But Ecclesiastes is... Uh, looks at that world and does not uh, recommend escapism. Oh, well, just, just have fun and just forget all these nasty things. Nor denial. Nor does Ecclesiastes uh, 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 recommend despair, even though it sometimes seems to come close to that. What Ecclesiastes recommends is 
realism, hence the title of our series of studies in this book. And especially in this chapter, but elsewhere too, especially in this chapter, recommends the path of wisdom. You have a life to live in a world which is uh, uh, fleeting and uncertain and fraught with danger, a world which is beautiful and yet deeply tainted and harmed. And you need to live in that world with wisdom. This world in which we live is, is, strikes me as being like a wonderful mansion or stately home on which a bomb has been dropped. <laughs> it's still recognisable as a beautiful building. Some of its rooms are still inhabitable, even though there are cracks in the walls and the plaster is falling off. And sometimes in some of the rooms, even the ceiling falls down. The roof roof caves in and you can't live in it anymore. But that mansion, that stately home, there are already plans for its renovation. And when it is renovated, it'll be much better even than ever it was before. And the price of rebuilding it has already been paid. But for the time being, we have to live in that ramshackled, really quite dangerous and uncertain stately home, admire the treasures that are still around, try and maintain it as best we can, but still accept that it's a rough job, it's a difficult job, and fraught with uncertainty and danger. That's the kind of picture that I think that the writer of Ecclesiastes is asking us to face up to. And just as Revelation, those two chapters of the Revelation and in Genesis, talk quite a lot about productive activity or what we would call work, then Ecclesiastes does the same thing. I don't want to be clear that when I talk about work this evening, I'm talking about all kinds of productive activity. Educational work with teachers and students. Family work with parents and children. Civil work with um, government and the governed. Church work with pastors and people. And, of course, work, work, going out to work for, to, to, earn, to earn a crust with bosses and workers. All kinds of work uh, I'm including under that, uh, under that rubric uh, this evening because I think that's really what Scripture uh, does as well. So, with this wide scope of productive activity in a fallen world, will we be wise or otherwise, as we make our way through this world? That's the question, I think, being posed in this passage of Scripture. And what we're given is a bunch of proverbs. Now, proverbs are funny things, sometimes strictly, <laughs> literally funny. But um, there's a, I think we need to understand how proverbs work. Proverbs are general truths but not absolute truths. Let me illustrate. Here's a pair of proverbs. Many hands make light work. Is that true? All right. Too many cooks spoil the broth. Is that true? 
Well, both their truth true sometimes. It's the part of wisdom to work out not so much whether they are true, but when they are true. If the church organizes a, a, a working party over a day to spruce up the church, clean, um, uh, hoover, uh, and this kind of thing, I think we might well say, many hands might like work. Come along as many as we, as we can. We've done that before, and we might do it again. Whereas, if the folks in the kitchen uh, serving us refreshments at the end of the service said, we'd like a bit more help, and 30 people crammed in there, I think we might say, I think they might say, too many cooks are spoiling this broth. So the idea of a proverb is not whether it's true, but when it's true. Actually, in the book of Proverbs, this is wonderfully shown, almost humorously shown, in um, Proverbs chapter 26, where verse 4 says something like, if somebody says something foolish to you, answer him, otherwise he'll think you're foolish too. And then the very next verse says the opposite. If somebody says something foolish to you, don't answer. Otherwise he'll think you're a fool as well. Answer a fool, don't answer a fool. The wisdom is in knowing when each of those applies. So with those preliminary um, uh, remarks... I don't want to spend too long on these proverbs. I just want to do a little bit of work with you on sort of slightly translating them into our own um, uh, vernacular, our own language. Uh, Because if if you notice those things about who gets to ride on a horse or who gets bitten by a snake, not immediately relevant to most of us here in Norwich. So let's just summarise some of the themes here. Uh, Verse 4 talks about anger without a cause. Let's say you're a student and uh, you put in your first essay, you worked really hard on it, and you just scrape a pass. And your tutor sees you and really gives you a bit of a rollicking, saying you're really going to have to pull your socks up, otherwise you're going to really struggle in this course. And you go away really with your tail between the legs. And and you've got a, a sneaking feeling that your fellow student, who got a much higher grade than you, got three-quarters of her material from Wikipedia without referencing it properly and is playing a very risky game indeed. The sense of this proverb is, well, if somebody gives you a rollicking, whether you deserve it or not, don't necessarily throw your toys out of the pram. Sometimes a quiet and patient response can heal the wounds, do a great deal of good, and uh, make sure that no further harm is done. Twits in high places is a major theme of this uh, chapter, verses 5 to 7 and 16 to 19, where the whole of society ends up being upside down. Uh, Yes, we could smile at it, except to say that... um, there are certainly countries in the world who, uh, where the leaders are behaving in these kinds of ways. That is to say, accumulating wealth for themselves while others, uh, feasting in the morning is the way the Ecclesiastes put it, um, while others are going uh, without. I don't want you to get the idea that I think, or that I think that you should think, that 
twits are all, the, the, that the high places are full of twits. I think that when people start saying every boss is incompetent, every, every manager is incompetent, and every politician is corrupt, I think that's lazy thinking. I don't think scripture or experience teaches that. Um, I think our scripture teachers have more respect for our leaders than that. But there is a sense in which you can find and do find, and some of you have found, twits or fools or incompetent or corrupt, dishonest people in high places, in places of of authority. Occupational hazards are dealt with in verses 8 to 11. Um, If you dig a pit, the first one says, you might fall into it. If you break down a wall, perhaps because you're going to rebuild it again, you might find in the cracks between the stones a snake and and it bites you. Work is full of hazards. Um, Accidents do happen. Now, the chapter doesn't tell us what to do about that. It says the wise person will will know that in this world, accidents happen and will take appropriate precautions against them. Now, I'm not going to ask for a vote, because I may end up embarrassing you, but I'm tempted to ask you, who thinks that health and safety legislation is, is political correctness gone mad? Don't answer that. Because m- many of us are tempted to do that, and so was I for a long time, until I looked up the statistics. The Health and Safety Act uh, Health and Safety at Work Act uh, was brought in in 1974. In the year preceding, there were over 600 uh, uh, fatal accidents at work. Recently, that number has been brought down to under 100. Now tell me that health and safety at work doesn't work. It may seem like a nuisance, but it does have an effect. And that, in a sense, is the, is the sense of, of, of this teaching here, is accidents will happen. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to be sensible about it? Are you going to be wise about it? Careless talk. Um, it used to be said in times of war that careless talk costs lives. Well, here, the life that um, the careless talk may cost is actually the fool's own life. He may actually dig himself a deep... A, 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 a pit so deep, a hole so deep, he falls into and kills himself, is, is, the, is the sense of this here. Um, talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. We have plenty of problems about that. So does scripture. Um, children are often taught to sing to each other in the playground. Uh, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's not true. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can break my heart. They are important. The Bible has a lot to say about words and how we use them, an economy of words. And then verse 20, walls have ears, or to put it uh, a bit more biblically, uh, according to what verse 20 says, um, a little bird told me. It's about gossip, especially about you know, those people we love to gossip about, our leaders, our managers, our bosses. And the warning here is, actually very contemporary, walls have ears um, in the sense that 
if you aren't very careful, what you thought you'd sent to one person confidentially, confidentially over Facebook or Twitter actually has been copied to everybody else. And everybody knows what the nasty and unfair thing that you said about your boss, your colleague, and so on. You may be thinking, I hope you're thinking, well, this is all very well, this is all very sensible and very wise, not very spiritual, is it? No mention of God at all. There's no mention of God in this chapter. So where do we go from here? Well, we go back to verse 2, I think, which says that if we're going to be God's people, we're not going to do these things on the surface, just go through the motions of taking these kinds of actions. Because verse 2 says, you need to look at your heart. Now, popular wisdom, if you've noticed these days, says, follow your heart. You know, follow your gut feeling. Follow your instincts. Scripture doesn't say follow your heart. Scripture doesn't trust your heart enough to say follow your heart. Scripture says, look at your heart and make sure it's pointing and traveling right rather than left. Make sure you calibrate, you set the GPS of your heart to go in the right direction and then go with it. Is your heart in the right place? Has God and is God transforming your heart? Now, Ecclesiastes is not Isaiah. Ecclesiastes, as I said, faces this fallen world and teaches us an appropriate attitude to have towards it and how to walk and to live wisely in it. It has little of future glory, joy in the Lord, and all these other things in it, very little of the gospel in it. Not nothing, but not much either. In contrast to Isaiah, which has lots of gospel in it. It's Isaiah who, towards the end, gives us this vision of God's new heavens and new earth created by God himself, is Isaiah that has the vision of a suffering servant, God's suffering servant, who was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. If you doubt, pardon my, 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 my language for a moment, if you doubt the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, Christ died in my place, as Richard was explaining only this morning from John's Gospel, then read Isaiah 53 and find, if you can, 14 references to the servant of God suffering and dying in your place and mine. I believe that Ecclesiastes uh, and Isaiah, to take those two examples, are not, face, uh, are not facing each other having a duel. I think they're facing back to back fighting different problems, or risking different problems. Ecclesiastes, the problem of how we live in this fallen world, and Isaiah, amongst many other things, the new life that God gives us in his suffering servant, and the greater, more glorious life to come in the new heavens and the new earth. In just such a way, in the New Testament, James is not Paul. Again, they are fighting back to back. James resisting the idea of what we call cheap grace, the idea that I can have faith in Christ that makes no difference to my behavior or attitudes, whereas Paul, who would agree with all of that, is focusing on other things, including God's 
the, the freedom and the grace of God in the gospel of Christ. Nevertheless, Paul will say precisely the same kind of things as James and Ecclesiastes in Ephesians, for example. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Live wisely in these difficult days. There's more, much more to be said about the joy that we have in Christ, the fulfillment uh, that we find, the beauty we find in this world. But Ecclesiastes says, get real. Get real with the frailty, the fleetingness, and how fraught this life is with uncertainty. So therefore, in living wisely, we will find enjoyment for ourselves. Ecclesiastes talks uh, several times uh, about there being nothing better than to eat and drink, find pleasure in eating and drinking, and joy in your work. Also in Living Wisely, we commend the gospel. How hurtful it is to the cause of Christ when people say of us, or people like us, call yourself a Christian, and you, and you have that attitude, you say that, you do that. We commend the gospel by living wisely. And we bring glory to God, who himself is a worker, and who has given us a wonderful, if flawed, world to work in, and a new heaven and a new earth, in which we can work with him joyfully, and without fear, and without pain, and without toil, forever and ever, doing things that we've never even dreamt of, but will bring joy to his heart and to our hearts too. Let us pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have called us to an active and productive life. It is often difficult here in this fallen world, but we thank you that you give us a light to follow, a Lord to love, and a future that we can look forward to with great joy and thanksgiving. Amen.